and that's that's what I'm trying to do here. I I I don't want to go. I don't want to particularly because I am a straight white man, uh, middle aged, fairly comfortable. I the last the last thing I want to do is to excuse behaviors that were inexcusable you know some of the people i'm talking about when i get to phil Spector, for example he's a murderer some of the people i'm talking i'm going to talk about are rapists you know these are not things that can possibly be excused no matter how talented the music the music is And welcome to another episode of Seth Lessing Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. And today, this is the second part of my conversation with Andrew Hickey, the wonderful podcaster whose uh, podcast is The History of Rock and Roll and 500 Songs. Um, if you have not heard the first part, I suggest you go back, listen to the earlier episode. Uh, you're going to find us in mid-conversation, and I'm about to turn to Andrew and ask him a question I've had about Elvis for um, a long time, and he gives a great answer. So here's Andrew and I. I want to... I feel like this is my bias, but I want to get your opinion on it. Way back, I gosh, I can't even think, probably in the 80s, I heard a story, and I've never been able to find if it's true or not, but I always, always hope it's true, and I have a what if, is supposedly Barbara Streisand's people wanted Elvis Presley yes, to play yeah. the Chris Christopherson role in A Star is Born. That's correct. They did, yes. And uh, the colonel would not let him because Elvis has to get top billing. Yeah. And I always think what could have been if if, – because it appears he was an actually decent actor. And in that kind of role, would it have changed his life? And would we have gotten another 30, 40, 50 years of Elvis? I – well, I I think those are slightly two different questions here. Okay. Um, There were – I think that the role would have changed Elvis's career, yes. uh, undoubtedly. He would have been very good in the role. He was a very good actor. If you watch the half a dozen of his 30 films where he's actually allowed to act, he does a, not, a, not a wonderful, not, he's not Marlon Brando or Al Pacino yeah. or somebody, but he's, he's a very, very solid good actor with a lot of screen presence. Yeah. If, he, if he'd been given that role, which was perfect for him at the time, he would have done well with it. Um, I don't think it would have changed his life, though. And this is one thing that I'm actually going to get into when I do my final Elvis episode, which is probably going to be around Suspicious Minds. That's going to be another couple of years from now. But I think the narrative about Elvis is he got fat, he took drugs, he died, basically, of self-inflicted problems. Yeah. I don't... uh, And there is an element of that. He, He was certainly suffering from depression. He certainly did too many drugs and stuff. But... The more I've investigated Elvis, the more I've realized that that narrative is false. Elvis died fundamentally because he had a series of chronic health conditions, mostly autoimmune conditions, which were not treatable at that time. Um, 
some of them are treatable now. I have some of the same conditions myself, actually. Um, but at the time, autoimmune conditions were basically a death sentence one way or another. Okay. He, he his heart problems, he had liver problems, he had kidney problems. The, the weight, the bloating, that was, that was all because his immune system was going haywire. Hmm. Um, and actually, quite a lot of the reason for his drug use, if you read now um, interviews with people like Dr. Nick, um, where they talk about what was happening, and you read them without the bias of the narrative. I mean, this is something I try and do all the time. I try and ignore yeah. the normal narrative. But if you look at it, what happened is something that happens all, this is something that happens all the time to people with chronic illnesses. Elvis was going asking for pain medication. The doctors were assuming he was, he was faking his illness to get pills. They gave him, Dr. Nick, prescribed him placebo pills that didn't work. El he, Dr. Nick actually got Elvis pills with, printed to look like the real tablets, the real opiates that they would prescribe for that kind of pain, but they were fakes. And then Elvis would take too many of those because he because they didn't they, they weren't, weren't working. working. Yeah. But then he'd also go to other doctors, get the same prescriptions, take too many of those as well. Um, but, and this is something that happens to people Anybody, anybody who has a chronic illness will tell you this. Yeah. If you go to a doctor and say, I am in pain, they will dismiss and deny the pain. Now, it turns out, you look at the... Dr. Nick has since looked at the x-rays of Elvis's body and stuff. He was suffering from chronic arthritis. He was in constant agony. He was asking for pain pills and being turned down. So, I... Yes, Elvis's mental state in his last few years was undoubtedly bad, being in that film would undoubtedly have helped him. I still don't see him living to much past 50 at the latest, just because, I mean, you look at his mother died when she was like, I think she was 43. I think yeah. she was a year older than him. She had a lot of the same health problems. She wasn't using pills. She wasn't, you know, she, she didn't have all the lifestyle stuff that Elvis had. She still died at the same age. I truly believe, having read up on, on this stuff, that Elvis... He fundamentally died of natural causes. It was helped on by his drug use and by his overeating. Yeah. Uh, but, th but those things were, in a large part, symptoms of underlying health problems that nothing could have fixed. He could have had a happier last few years. He could have had a more artistically satisfying last few years. He could have had a more financially satisfying last few years if the colonel had let him be in that film, or if he just got rid of the colonel in, like, 1968. So that's, or, I'm going to stop you there because... First off, that's fascinating, but that's that was my next question, is I hear the stories you have been telling about Elvis, and by far, in my mind, the colonel is the villain of the story. Absolutely. And, and I don't know if that's what you are wanting to imply, but by far, I, I there is the what if, and you wonder what kind of – because you, you've talked about – he wouldn't allow him great songwriters. He, they wouldn't allow other people accessing him. They wouldn't yeah. let him stretch, uh, you know, creatively. Like one of the things, and yes, I do realize, guys, this is a Bruce Springsteen podcast. But like one of the things that I admire about Bruce is, um, you know, just a few years ago he decided, you know, to go to Broadway and, and yeah. create his own story. Western Stars, his last album, totally different than anything else he's done, much yeah. more in the spirit of, of, of Jimmy Webb and, and Glenn Campbell and that thing. He has done that his whole career because yeah. he's had the ability of, I want to try something new, I'm going to do it. Yeah. 
Elvis did not ever have that luxury, did he? No, no. And of course, some of that is partly was partly his own choice. Yeah. Elvis. Elvis fundamentally chose to work with the Colonel, but he chose to work with the Colonel in part because from a very young age, remember he was 19 when he signed with the Colonel, I think think he was 19, might have been 20, but you know, very young. Um, No, he must have been 20, sorry, but yeah, he was 20 when he signed with the Colonel. His family believed that the Colonel was the person who, who brought him all this money, and to an extent he was. The Colonel was the one who got him the biggest contract ever with RCA in 1956. But then for the next 20 odd years, the colonel limited his, limited his ambitions, limited the people around him, um, kept sending him to worse and worse deals, kept not managing his affairs properly, and was always doing so in a way that would get the colonel a short term financial bonus. Uh, often they would then go and spend gambling. And you know, one of the reasons why Elvis played those huge, long Vegas residencies, two shows a night for six months or whatever, is because the colonel owed millions to the owners of the of the Las Vegas places he was playing um the the colonel i i can't find anything good to say about the colonel as a human being you know most of the people i've covered like i said before most of them are sort of monstrous in one way or another but most of them have, have also got good points you know um you know even Jerry Lee Lewis who is a horrible horrible human being yeah. he's very charming he's uh, he he's He's horrible in a sort of human way, you know. Right. Um, you, you can you can imagine sitting down and having a pleasant conversation with Jerry Lee Lewis for a couple of hours and finding him fascinating to talk to and funny and you know. And sure. if you don't know all this history, you could go away thinking, "What a nice old man." And, but right. you know, the Colonel doesn't seem to have had any interests at all other than his own enrichment. Mm. He seems to have been. A thoroughly unpleasant human being. He seems to have been all about asserting his own power over other people and getting other people into his debt and all about controlling other people and having no or very, very little inner life, very little emotional life, very little of of the things that make that give people good points you know he, yeah. he even like his sense of humor it was all about playing practical jokes on other people to show that it, to show that he had the power over other people to do those things and they yeah. couldn't stop him you know um so yeah the colonel was absolutely a villain um if elvis had gone with anyone else at all he would he would have been he would have been able to tour europe which he always wanted to do but which the colonel wouldn't let him do because either the colonel would have had to go with him in which case his immigration status would have been discovered and Quite possibly, it would have been discovered that he'd murdered somebody. We don't know that for sure, but there is very strong suspicion that the reason he came to America and changed his name was because of a murder that happened the same day in the same town that he disappeared from. You know, um, the, if uh, if the colonel had let Elvis go without the colonel, then Elvis would have would have had to deal with business people in Britain or France or whatever who might have said to him, "Hang on a second, you're giving him how much for what?" You know, yeah. and so. Just things like that. He, he would have been able to make films that he wanted to make rather than films that were short-term cash cows. He would have been able to choose songs he wanted to choose rather than choosing songs based on a contract he was tied into. Now, some of this is easy to criticise retrospectively. Yes. Because remember, there were, before Elvis, there was no rock stardom. And right. also before before Elvis, it was perfectly normal for a singer to just sing whatever songs their producer 
gave them. You know, most yes. most singers for major labels had no artistic control. And in some ways, Elvis had far more artistic control in the 50s than other people working for RCA or Columbia yeah. or Decca. He, he got to choose his own material from within the subset of songs he was allowed to perform. He got to do his own arrangements, all that kind of thing. But the world moved on. And Elvis's contracts didn't move on, and if anything, they regressed. The Colonel was a great manager for 1955. He was an absolutely lousy manager for 1970, is what it boils down to. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And and just hearing you talk about that makes me want to, uh, you know, I really look forward to hearing those other chapters and how you feel. Yeah, yeah. I'm probably um, I'm probably only going to do the one more on Elvis because if the any of your listeners don't know, I've done like, I think, six Elvis episodes yeah. already. Um, and so I'm going to do one more in 1968 or 69, talking about his comeback, the Vegas career and yeah. his death, um, because that needs to be covered in any history. But I'm probably not going to do anything between now and then. So there's not going to be an episode on there's no there's no room to rumble in a sports car or eat or eat or something. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's yeah, that's really good. Um. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Do, gosh, we've almost been an hour, and so I just really? appreciate it. Yeah. Um, have you? What have you learned? Now you've been doing the podcast. You're up to like 89, 90 songs. So it's yeah. been, um, you know, I, I did pick up the first book um, yeah. and got to reread, um, you know, some of my favorite songs. What What have you learned doing the podcast? And not just it, it about actually learning the podcast and what you're can you're using to make it better. Um, how do you mean? Do you mean about like what have I learned as far as making a podcast, or what have I learned as far as the sort of the history goes, or well, both? Yeah, both kind of. I think yeah. Well, in the, in the history, the main things I've learned have been the the importance of a, a few random individuals. You know, um, I didn't know as much about fifties British rock and roll music as I did about fifties American music. Partly because most of it's not very good, you know. Um, but I learned. I learned how interconnected the British scene was, and I learned a lot more about 
the importance of a few people like the Viper Skiffle Group, who you'll have heard me mention a few times. The, the, these figures are they're not as ignored now because weirdly, around the time I did this, a, a British singer called Billy Bragg, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he released a book um, called uh, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, um, which looks at the very early years of the skiffle craze. And that's that was a bit of a bestseller. And it's actually a really, really good book. Um, I encourage everybody with any interest in folk music or political music or early rock and roll to pick that book up. Um, but, you know, I I had until I started researching, I'd always regarded someone like Lonnie Donegan as a little bit of a joke figure. But actually, the man was monstrously talented. He was really, really good. As far as making the podcast goes, um, I've... <laughs> I've not really changed the techniques I use much, except now um, my friend Tilt does a first pass edit because I was ending up spending 20, 20 hours sometimes editing the podcast because I am misophonic. I hear every little squeak that my voice makes, every little click, those kind of things. And I was obsessing over that to the point that I was trying to get rid of too much stuff that it was it, not only was it, it taking up all my time, but it was making it sound a little unnatural. So um you know almost robotic because i was removing overtones from my voice and all this kind of thing you know, just so but the the basic technique I, I haven't really changed from from day one i write a script i sit down i read the script out um each section where it comes to a song i do as one take then i go and do a second take of that um and then i edit it in audacity on oh, oh now tilt does a first pass edit and then i do another edit because i i'll go through and fix things like timings and so on and i'll take out mistakes that he's left in by accident and that kind of thing but it's really a quite straightforward process for me you know i um it's mostly the, the writing takes up the bulk of the time um you know I'm, I'm working like 40 hours a week on the writing of this in uh, well the writing and the researching and you know the gathering all the data and so on um so yeah the, the, as far as the sort of technical aspect of podcast production i've not learned that much because that's that's been something I've been trying to obsess less over, you know. No, no, no. I understand that. And I guess as you're writing, have you, have you, have you adjusted your storytelling technique, or like what have you kind of based on feedback from listeners? Know, were, are you emphasizing more? Are you emphasizing less? Or did you have a pretty solid vision of what you, how you wanted to tell the story, and have you stuck to that, Andrew? Um, I think I've more or less stuck to what stuck to my intentions. I haven't, Good. I haven't had that much feedback from listeners uh, in a sort of critical sense. I did have one person uh, DMing me, t telling me, "Why are you doing all this stuff? Stuff about black people? We all know that you're just being woke." But you know, that, that I just, I just oh, blocked that person. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, yeah, the, the the only the only sort of criticisms I've had have been fairly minor things. Some people think, um, I explained before we, before we started recording, but I read from a script. I, I read very slowly when I'm doing the podcast. I speak like this as clearly and distinctly as I can because I know that my voice can be difficult for people to understand who don't know my accent very well. Um, I have friends and relatives in the States. I've been there a number of times. People get confused. So I try, I try and make my, I, I try and phrase Listenability, comprehensibility over nat natural, over speaking naturally. Sure. 
And so some people have said, you know, I, I talk a bit too slow, a bit too flat. That's that's a conscious choice. I'm not going to change that based on those things, because the, the alternative is gabbling away and people don't understand what I'm saying. Um, then the the only other feedback I've had has the only other critical feedback I've had has tended to be people saying, why are you being so woke or whatever? You know, just um, and you can't tell you can't tell a, an honest history of rock and roll music without talking about things like the fact that half when, when people went on a package tour, half of the artists couldn't stay at the same hotel as the other half of the artists. You know, you, yeah. you, you can't you, if you miss that stuff out, that's that's not at that point is not history. It's not honest, you know. And yes, I am. By by the standards of people who listen to um, podcasts on older music, I'm probably more left wing than most. I'm, pro- I'm probably more sort of so- socially liberal than most. That's yeah, uh, but that's that's never been the focus of the of the podcast. But of course, that's going to come out, and I'm not going to change that. Um, and and I one of the things I want to compliment you on <clears throat> is um, you 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 said this, you know earlier that assume they're a monster and you and you say that slightly tongue-in-cheek but um you know um once again my parents influenced me really strongly so like the johnny cash episodes meant a lot to me because my father adored johnny cash yeah and 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 he had a very complex life um and you 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 have covered that well um and sam cook you know um yeah sam cook the voice of an angel but not necessarily always like an angel right absolutely absolutely and and i just i think i think we in this is i don't i don't know if whitewash is the right word but if you try to clean up all the flaws uh, we're not getting a true picture, and and we can we can appreciate the fact that um, these people maybe did horrible acts, but yeah. that doesn't stop the fact that Johnny Be Good is an absolutely yes. amazing song, and I think absolutely. people two hundred years from now will be listening to Johnny Be Good. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I th- I think that's that's definitely the case. Um, it, and but conversely, of course, Johnny B. Good being great doesn't make Chuck Berry any less of a horrible person. You know, exactly. It, it, you you have to cover both those things if you if you're going to tell the story. Um, there's somebody I wouldn't say hugely influenced by because I mean this would be my instinct anyway. But somebody who does this very well is Peter Goralnik, who has written a very good biography of Sam Cooke specifically, and who also wrote a the the definitive two volume biography of Elvis. And I've drawn on him quite a lot for those two particularly. Yeah. Um, if you read Goralnik's books, you get I, I can't again I can't recommend enough anybody who's interested in Sam Cooke or Elvis Presley or Sun Records go out and buy his books on Elvis or Sam Phillips or Sam Cooke. All of them he acknowledges absolutely down the line, he will tell you every horrible thing those people did, but you will still come out of it with a, a sympathy for, an understanding of those people and a love of their music. You will you will come out of his books thinking what a horrible person! But I can completely see why he why he was like that. I can completely see, you know, Sam Cooke. I I knew very little about Sam Cooke's life before I read his uh, Goralnik's biography. I do not think Sam Cooke was a good man. 
at all. But I, I, but he had a lot of very, very, very good points. He yeah. uh, going back to what I was saying earlier about Jerry Lee Lewis, Sam Cooke even more so. Uh, except Sam Cooke, as far as we know, didn't do the ho- the particular horrible things that Jerry Lee Lewis did. Yeah. But Sam Cooke was self obsessed and cruel to his wife and kids, and not you know not a nice person. But he was he was also somebody who was utterly charming, who was very very loyal to the people around him, who was astonishingly talented and in some ways you have to think if i was that good looking and that, that voice and that songwriting ability and uh, you know if everybody wanted to be me would would i not become a, would i not have those flaws as well and i you know i, I probably have many of those flaws without any of those talents you know um and and so um Gavalnik has sort of not influenced me but sort of Show me that that is, that that is a thing that can be done and can be done well. He he's one of, one of the few people whose books on rock music I would urge people to read because he, he because you will get the unvarnished truth, but not but not in an Albert Goldman sort of way. You know, if you if you read Goldman's books on Elvis or John Lennon, he just hates these people and just wants to say everything bad about them and not acknowledge that there is anything good to say about Elvis or John Lennon. You read his books and you come away thinking, why would any why would why would anybody ever work with these people? Why would anybody ever listen to their music? Why would anybody why would anybody admire them? Why weren't they dead on the streets by the time they were seventeen because because they were ostracized by society? You read Gavalnik's books and you come away thinking, I see exactly why these people got this successful. I like their music more now than than I did when I started. <clears throat> it's a shame about their flaws. Um and that's that's what I'm trying to do here. I I I don't want to go I don't want to, particularly because I am a straight white man, uh, middle-aged, fairly comfortable. I the last the last thing I want to do is to excuse behaviours that were inexcusable. You know, some of the people I'm talking about. You know, I, I, when I get to Phil Spector, for example, he's a murderer. Some of the people I'm talking I'm going to talk about are rapists. You know, these are not things that can possibly be excused, no matter how talented the music the music is. No matter how good the music is, but at the same and I, so much rock journalism in the past has been, ah, he molested a few kids. Who cares? I love the record, and that is the last thing I want to do. But conversely, what I don't want to do is say this person did did this horrible thing. Therefore, then because even even if Chuck Berry was a million times worse than he was. Johnny B. Good would still have been one of the most influential records ever made. It would still be a record that carried on influencing people. And you have to you have to acknowledge that as well. You have to acknowledge these things. And in most of these cases, as I've said, I say they were monstrous and they were, but some of them have also they no what no one is any one thing. You know, or very few people are any one thing. And I'm trying to tell an honest story. I'm trying to as honest as I can, given that I, you know I don't I don't know these people personally. I've I've um, I'm trying to say this is what happened, and I'm trying to give. I'm saying sort of honesty is very important to me. You know, if if I if I think Jerry Lee Lewis is a monster who quite possibly was responsible for kill, for killing at least one of his wives, certain certainly he he married a 14 year old girl. You know. The, did a number of other horrible things. I'm not, I'm not going to ignore those things. I'm not going to say Jerry Lee Lewis was a great bloke. But no, am I going to say 
whole lot of shaking going on isn't a great record. No, I, and, and you have to you have to do both to to, to tell the story. You know, um, and, I think. And from my perspective as a fan, and you know, and that's all I can say, I I think you walk that line very well. Thank and, you. And I I think that's really good. All right, we're going to change just for a moment. I like I said, we've hit an hour. I don't know how. I don't want to stress your time, but I have to spend a couple minutes. Um, sure. You are passionate about Doctor Who. Um, yes. On my Twitter account, I go, I am I am passionate about Bruce Springsteen and Doctor Who. So I've yeah. got to ask you a little bit, um, sure. who's your doctor? Um, well, my doctor in that, that sense that people have is almost certainly Colin Baker. Um, I which is an unusual one, but the, he, he was the Doctor when I was about seven. He was the Doctor at... at a, I, I watched Doctor Who from being tiny, tiny kid. Um, I have very vague memories of Tom regenerating into Peter. But as far as where I have sort of memories of whole stories yeah. and the, the events in them and so on, it was Colin Baker, you know. I still have a little bit of trauma, but that my parents taped over my Beta Max video of Re- Revelation of the Daleks that I taped <laughs> off the TV. <laughs> you know. No, sorry. I always get Revelation of Remembrance confused. The, the, the Colin Baker one, the, 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 yeah. with Davros and the graveyards, and yeah, that one. I, st- I, mm-hmm. still, ha- I still have a little... A, a, a little grudge against my parents for taking <laughs> over that when I was seven, you know. I love but, that. But, yeah, so Colin is my doctor in that sense. And I also think he is a terrifically underrated doctor. I think his episodes stand up a lot better than people give them credit for. And I think there are all sorts of reasons that reasons that he is dismissed that are nothing to do with what's actually on the screen. And if I was doing a fi- history of Doctor Who in 500 episodes thing, then I, I could go into that more. But it would, it would take an hour. But I also, I have... Very, very passionate loves for Hartnell and for Tom Baker and for Troughton as well. I think those those three, um, I can watch any story with any of those and enjoy it, you know. So um, I do uh, Next Stop Everywhere, uh, a podcast where Charles Skaggs and I discuss. Um, we, we always do the new episodes when it's um, yeah. current. And then we go back and we selectively. And just um, a couple weeks ago, we did Attack of the Cybermen. Which yeah. is uh, with Colin and uh, Nicola Bryant, and yeah. we talk about that he he wasn't served well. Um, the the costume was horrible, um, yeah. and and at the time, you know, uh, they you know they they were they're cutting funding, and I yeah. think he because of all the work he did on Big Finish. He kind yeah. of redeemed himself, and I now then he has thought much better as a doctor because of all the great work he's done on Big Finish audios and yeah. through conventions. Um, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, are how how pleased were you in 2005 when Russell T Davis brought it back? Were you excited, and did you enjoy the the new um, the modern era? I was very excited when it came back. I enjoyed the first series, the Christopher Eccleston series. I thought it had some problems, but I thought it had some great aspects. Um, but I, I was hoping that when Tennant came in, they would fix what I saw as the problems and concentrate on the great aspects. As it turned out, the Tennant era did precisely the opposite of what I wanted. All the things that I disliked about the Eccleston era, they sort of over, overemphasized and made a million times worse from my perspective. Um, 
and all the things I liked about the Eccleston era sort of disappeared. Um, I didn't like David Tennant's period at all. I didn't much like Moffat's. There were, there were a couple of seasons that Moffat did. Moffat's first season I liked quite a bit. And I loved The Other Doctor. I thought that was a perfect thing. Oh, I actually think the novelization's even better in some ways. But I, I thought Day of the Doctor was a great, great piece of TV by any standards. But overall, I didn't much like um, anything... The first season from both of them. And now um, with Chibnall, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the first Jodie Whittaker season, actually, which I, I think a lot, a lot of people seem not to. Uh, the second Jodie Whittaker season I have some issues with, and I'm hoping that it doesn't it isn't the same pattern again, where somebody starts out with a season I like, and then each succeeding season goes further and further away from what I like. Um, so we'll see. Um, although I have to say that while I didn't... I. I, st- I still enjoyed Whitaker's second season more than I enjoyed most of most of post two thousand and five Doctor Who, um, and while I am philosophically opposed to big long story arcs concentrating on Gallifrey and the Doctor's origins, I I'm sort of addicted to them at the same time. I can't help but enjoy them <laughs> despite myself, even though I think that even though I think they're a bad idea. So, uh, yeah, um, my Charles and I disagreed about the the final two episodes. I felt like they 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 there wasn't enough payoff. He's just thrilled that where the story can take them. And so I'm curious. I do love Jody as a doctor. I, of course I'm biased, Andrew. Um, I came to this through Torchwood of all things. I, I, you know, um, someone, I was a big Firefly fan and someone suggested that John, that, uh, Captain Jack and Malcolm Reynolds were the same people. So I went to my friend and I said, Hey, you love Dr. Who. Uh, what's this? Who's Captain Jack? And he goes, Oh, it's Torchwood. Gave me the episodes. I went back to him. I said, okay, I really like this Captain Jack guy. Right. Can I see the Dr. Who episodes? He goes, it's just easier to start. And, and so I've become a fan since. So I've loved all the modern doctors. Yeah. With the flaws they have, so yeah. um, I just it, it's just great to see, and I love that Colin is your docker. That makes me smile. That that just yeah. makes me so happy. All right. Yeah. Um, before I get to the Mary question, anything that I I should have asked you that I haven't. Um, I really can't think of anything. I mean, I, I've sort of blathered on for half an hour at the, after each of your questions, so I, I can't even remember everything that that, that <laughs> been said. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, for somebody who's talking about himself so much today, I'm I'm not very good at talking about myself. I don't know what's I don't know okay. what's interesting. So you know, okay. but if if you if you can't think of anything, I'll trust that you've asked any everything that okay, sh- should be asked. All right. So um, for those of you who this might be your first episode, uh, the Mary question. So Jay Armstrong is a honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area, and every year his seniors, he takes two days, and they take down the song Thunder Road, and they break it down as a poem. They include, uh, he compares it to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. They look at all the lyrics. They look at the imagery, the symbolism of the song. And then at the end of the two days, he looks at his class and says, does Mary get in the car? So that was your homework, Andrew. Yeah. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you two answers for this, because um, I, uh, my, my wife is a much more of a Springsteen fan than me. I, I know Springsteen's work. I like some of it, but I'm... I'm Fundamentally, I'm not very much a lyrics person, and Springsteen is more of a lyrics than a, yes, than a, fair enough. a music thing. Uh, so 
um, I, you know, I've got half a dozen of his albums, and but you know, I'm not. But my wife's a big, big fan. Um, and so when I mentioned I was coming on the show, I mentioned this song to her, and she immediately said, "Yes, of course, of course she does." Um, and I, I said, because I'd, I'd not paid any attention to it, I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that then." And then she was like, "No, no, no, it is an, it is an actual question. It's just the, the answer seems obvious to me." So my wife's answer is, "Yes, of course, he do, of course she does, and yes. she knows it better than me." But having listened to it myself, I would actually go for the other. I mean, I, I believe the intent is that she gets in the car. I, I. My reading of the author's intent is that Mary gets in the car at the end. My reading of the song is that, because I'm coming at it from more of a musical than a lyrical point of view, that that musical style, that big Phil Spector wall of sound kind of kind of style, um, I my associations with that are always songs of teen angst and of yes. problems that cannot that cannot be fixed. Um, you know, it, 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 the song isn't the same, but you know, he hit me and it felt like a kiss and things like this. The, the, these very negative. So my, so my reading of it is that my reading is that the music is meant to sound triumphal and it's meant to sound like yes, she's going to get in the car. But my associations with that style of music make me say that no, she isn't. That that, that this is all a hopeless dream and everything is going to carry on being exactly as it is. Um, so. I, Take that as you will. I love that answer. In fact, I, um, I, I, you kind of gave an answer. I, I had someone recently say, "It depends, Jesse. If the full band plays Thunder Road, the musical at the end with the saxophone is triumphant of them driving off together. Um, yeah. When he does it solo, and he, you, you, when at the end when he's kind of humming, that's right. him driving away sad because she didn't get in the car." Right. <laughs> and I said I love that. Uh, no, yeah. uh, we are. It's about a sixty forty switch. Mostly sixty percent of the people say yes. Um, right. Almost all um, female listeners say yes, and I right. think partly that's because they think it's Bruce asking them to get in the car, yeah. not the <laughs> protagonist. Uh, and I think that is fair. That is absolutely great. Um, yeah. Andrew. This has been a joy to me. I hope you have had as much fun as I have. Um, it's been fun, yeah. Uh, so talk to me. If, if people want to reach you, um, how can they? And talk about how they can get the podcast and your books. Right, okay. The podcast is available at 500songs.com. Um, that's uh, Obviously, it's on every podcast platform, your Google podcast, your Apple podcast, whatever. Um, it's called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Andrew Hickey. Um, my, my name is spelled H-I-C-K-E-Y. Um, I do 10-minute bonus episodes every week uh, to go along with the podcast on a different song. Um, so if you've tried the podcast and like it, that's for as little as a dollar a month. You can get these extra 10-minute bonus podcasts. My books can be found by searching my name on your, your favorite um, book, online bookstore, um, Amazon or Kobo or Barnes & Noble or whatever. Um, I would warn listeners, I did my first book is called The Beatles in Mono. It's not very good. I'm in the process of rewriting that and putting out as a second edition that is good. Okay. So don't buy that one. Um, it's, <laughs> I, I don't stand by it. It was like 10 years ago. It was the first thing I wrote. Uh, looking back on it, it's 
I'm, I'm doing a full rewrite. The, the full rewrite should hopefully be out in about six months. So if you really want to read it, wait, wait until then and get a good book instead of a bad one. But the other books I've done, I've done books on the Beach Boys, the Kinks, um, the Monkees. Um, I did one on the L.A. scene generally for people like the, the Beach Boys and the Monkees, but also people like Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, Joni Mitchell. Uh, that book's called California Dreaming, and that's very much in the same... The, a sort of trial run for the podcast on a, a much smaller scale. Um, I did a book on Doctor Who. I've also written a few novels and various other things. They're all on any online bookstore. As far as getting in touch with me, probably the most reliable way to get in touch is through the Patreon, if you're a Patreon backer, because I always make sure I reply to every message there. But I have a personal Twitter account, Hickey Writer, which... I wouldn't recommend following unless you want to see me arguing with the phone company and things like that. You know, that's just <laughs> yeah. what, uh, anything. And there is a there is a Twitter account specifically for the podcast, um, which is um, five hundred song five hundred the numbers songs podcast. Um, so if you if you follow that, you'll you'll just see updates about the podcast and about things relating to music. Um, well, and this morning there was a wonderful discussion because someone asked you. Uh, about oh, yes. the um, the bias, they asked about a band, and I do not remember the band now or the musician. Yeah. And you said you were very kind but very honest about that. Um, you know, there is a bias of California rock yeah. because of the Rolling Stone, you know, editor and and one of yeah. the founders of the Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, I was asked about Johnny Rivers in particular, yes. um, specifically. <clears throat> and for those of you listeners who don't know, Johnny Rivers was very big in the the 60s. Probably the most famous thing he did these days is uh, Secret Agent Man, um, the, the theme tune for, for the, the American version of the show Secret Agent, which in Britain was called Danger Man and had a different theme. Um, but he, he was a huge star... Uh, but he he was a, very much a Hollywood music star. He didn't write much of his own material, or maybe not any. Uh, he was very well known for playing Hollywood nightclubs and so on. And um, Jan Wenner is basically in control of who gets in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Jan Wenner still has this is still stuck in this idea he had when he was like twenty one, twenty two, that there is a certain thing called real rock music, and that real rock music is as close as possible to the Grateful Dead or Jefferson Airplane or these San Francisco bands that came up in the late 60s. And anything from anything from L.A. and Hollywood is fake and plastic and not real. And, you know, I've written books on the Beach Boys and the Monkees, so you can imagine what my thoughts sure, on that absolutely. are. Um, and, yeah, so, like, Wenner has said specifically that the Monkees will never make the, rolling, the, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as long as he's alive. And so, you know, um, and from my point of view... I don't I don't really care in that sense about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because that, that just means it's one person's opinion. And Jan Wenner is not somebody I respect hugely as a as a judge of music. You know, I mean you have to have some respect for him. He's been doing he's been involved in music journalism for longer than I've been alive. So, you know, he, yeah. he but he's not he's not somebody whose opinion matters to me in that sense. So somebody not being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, eh, who cares? I, I I can make my own list of the 500 best artists or whatever. Um, so so yeah, I I don't, that's one of the things I've been trying to do with this podcast actually in a way is say that the conventional narratives about what is important in rock music aren't as important as people actually make them out to be. Yes. There are other stories to be told. There are other perspectives. And to do that, I've had to cover 
the conventional narrative as well, in part, because, you know, if I, if I decided I wasn't going to do a single episode on the Rolling Stones, somebody at some point would say, hang on a second, you call this a history of rock music, you yeah, haven't covered the Rolling Stones. So you've got to cover the Rolling Stones, even, you know. Um, you, there are, but there are, other, there are other stories that can be told. There, there are many, many other stories that can be told, and many of them more interesting than the, than the one that goes... The, First, first there was Rock Around the Clock, then there was Elvis, then then there was the Beatles, then then there was the Stones, then the, then there was Jefferson Airplane, then there was Led Zeppelin, then then there was Michael Jackson, and that was the peak of human civilization. Yes, you know, um, there were other stories, and that's that's what I'm trying to do more than anything else. Tell those other stories. So, um, one of the things that I have enjoyed immensely is, you know, when you go to a podcast late, you tend to you know, there's two styles. You can be a completist, like, yeah. okay, I'm going to start at the beginning and catch all, or, you know, I'm going to cherry pick. I'm just going to pick yeah. episodes. And originally, I'm like, oh, I want to listen to the stories about the songs I knew, right? Yeah. And very quickly, I learned, no, 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 whether I know this song or not, um, Andrew is going to tell a story that is entertaining, that is informative, and that is worth my time. Thank you. And so, um, so I do think you are doing a great job of telling stories that need to be told. Thank and you. Um, and I think there's a lot of controversy right now about history and, yeah. and Confederate monuments and and do you change things and, and and including in my household there's discussions about that. But yeah. I I just want to applaud you because um, you were telling. Um, our history as music fans and you're you're doing the good the bad and the ugly and in a way that is always entertaining and Thank i you. am uh, i'm i'm very happy to be a patron of your Thank you uh, podcast much. it is really good thank you i'm very happy to have you as a patron i need the money <laughs> yeah exactly um but all right that's seriously thank you thank you yeah. very much thank yeah you. all right so listeners i hope you will go check out um one of the benefits, uh, if I remember correctly, at a certain level, you get uh, when Andrew does a new book. So yeah. I, I always, I was like, oh, that's kind of a good deal, uh, yeah. because like I'm gonna buy the Kindle book anyway, so why don't I help the writers are going? Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, if if you're willing, let's check back in a little bit and talk about Absolutely. some of the other episodes. Um, I had a blast. Listeners, please go and check Thank out you. his podcast. Continue to subscribe and support my podcast. Um, we tell someone, tell just one listener. It really does make a difference uh, because uh, word of mouth is how we find people, and uh, we're doing this because we want people to hear it. Absolutely. All right. Andrew, you have a great day. Listeners, stay safe. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Be Remember to be social distanced. And for good sake, be good to each other. And we'll talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading story sharing podcast that is the one the only said listening bruce said listening bruce is part of the southgate media podcast group the theme for set listening bruce was written by david rosen used by permission 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 